This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written, published article, Who Was at the Helm, from 1965. It's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump. Much more. And remember, subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week. The cost is less than a beer at a bar, and you get a better buzz with, with the Savage Premium. So go to, go to glow.fm slash Savage Premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Michael Savage Podcast. Today is a very big day. I would say this is one of the biggest interviews we've ever had on the Michael Savage Podcast. It's none other than... 
Well, it's Jared Kushner with his new book, Breaking History, a White House memoir. You're going to listen to it. You're going to learn things you didn't know. You're going to hear a personal interview and a personable interview. And you're going to learn things and enjoy things as well, I am sure. After this, we have a special treat for you as well. We have found in the golden archives in our secret vault the original description of the very famous ice cream summit with President Trump aboard Air Force One. It's a very important story. It's not tongue in cheek. It actually happened. Uh, Actually, I call it the hot dog summit. I'm sorry. The uh, ice cream summit was at Mar-a-Lago a few years before. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. I'm Michael Savage. All right. Welcome to the Michael Savage podcast. Today is a I would say a seminal day in the history of this podcast, because it's not often that we get people of the magnitude of Jared Kushner. And I am very, very honored to have Mr. Kushner with us today on the Michael Savage podcast. Without further ado, Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor to be with you. And I've, I've followed you over the, the, the many years and gotten to know you. And it's an honor to be with you on your show. All right, it's all about God. That's the truth. I wouldn't be here. And we're going to talk about God at some point in this podcast, because I think there's an element that must be discussed, not only in my life and your life, but in the bigger picture. So I'm going to start with what is your greatest achievement while acting as White House advisor, in your opinion? Well, thank you. So uh, I I write in the book about a lot of the different um, a lot of the different uh, files that I was very fortunate to, to work on. I think people know a lot about the work we did on trade with our trade deals with Mexico and Canada, the work we did uh, with Warp Speed to try to get the vaccine out and the, uh, and the pandemic ended, and, and also uh, the work in the Middle East. But the, the, the achievement that I'm most proud of is actually the work that I was able to do with President Trump on pardons and on prison reforms. Uh, that was work that was very personal to me and work where I, I really saw uh, President Trump uh, get very interested in seeing how just the system can be applied uh, not always evenly, and how you have some people who are stuck in, in prison who shouldn't be, and he saw either that they've been reformed or that they maybe were uh, unfairly sentenced, and he looked to to give them a second chance, and, and that was beautiful for me. But don't you think that the crime wave we're seeing in big cities has something to do with an overbearing uh, you know, police reform, prison reform? mentality they've gone too far no not not on the prison reform you know the the the, the big culprit i see right now has been the bail reform which Ah. uh people were pushing us to try and uh and uh and and get involved with which we never did because you know the the essence of the reform that we did on prison reform was taking people who are in prison and basically trying to get them uh, job training skills, mental health treatment. You, didn't, you uh, weren't involved treatment. in bail reform. I need to distinguish that because people are seeing a crime wave and they're saying it's the liberals, it's the Soros funding DAs who were soft on crime. It's all true. But your uh, your push in the White House was different than bail reform. No, substantially different. Look, if, if you have people who are in prison, if you don't help them uh, create opportunity for themselves while they're there. They're going to go out and commit future crimes. So you know where a lot of your future criminals are. They're currently in our prisons. So while they're in your custody, we have to decide as a country, are our prisons warehouses for human trash? Are they places to punish people? In other words, once you rehabilitate, if if you sign off on people and say you're worthless. Americans from across the political spectrum can unite around prison reform legislation that will 
reduce crime while giving our fellow citizens a chance at redemption. Well, there's a, a saying from, I think it was Goethe who wrote, if you take a man as he is, you make him worse. If you take a man as he can be, you make him better. I never forgotten 100%. that. I, I think that's really what you're saying. But to me, your greatest achievement was were the Abraham Accords. It was Kerry who said, John Kerry, there will never be peace in the Middle East. When you arranged uh, the uh, peace accords between, let's say, the Jews and the Arabs, to make it simple, that was a monumental achievement, in my opinion. And you don't get it. Truthfully, oh, you're blowing smoke. Yeah, I am. I think you should get a Nobel Prize for that. Thank you. Well, the, the truth is what we did there was uh, really against what all the conventional thinking was. And uh, when I first got to Washington, I, I actually believed the conventional thinking. What Kerry said was that there'd be no peace between Israel and the Arab countries until you had peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And the more we looked at the Palestinian situation, we thought the whole thing was a big con job. Uh, basically, they found a way to institutionalize anti-Semitism. And through that process, they were able to get billions of dollars uh, into their coffers. It never went to the people. It stayed with the leadership. And basically, the whole world was just following this illogical construct. And so Wait, you, I want to follow what you're saying, that most of the aid that the world was sending to the Palestinians was being siphoned off by a corrupt leadership in plain English, correct? Well, let me put it this way. When Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, would fly to Washington, he would do it on a commercial LL plane. When the leader of this refugee clan who's supposed to who's supposedly been marginalized for you know for the last 70 years would fly he'd fly in a 60 million dollar Boeing business jet. Wow, what, and what, so, what could be better than a, than a revolutionary flying in a 70 yeah, million dollar jet? Yeah, and also I write in the book actually there's a scene where we're meeting with him to try to go through because he's saying all the right things. I mean the guy's got a great, you know, he's got a great uh, you know he's he's been doing this for a long time. So he knows how to tell people what they want to hear, but we're sitting in a meeting and instead of him taking a cigarette up and lighting it, he put a cigarette in his mouth and he'd have somebody come over and light the cigarette for him. And I'm saying, is this is this the head of a refugee group or is this wow. a king? But uh, but it's either way, you know, we, we 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 figured out very quickly that they were kind of full of it. And, you know, I believe that peace should be about the future. And we worked very hard to align people on their interests and on on their commonality. For thousands of years, the Jews and the Muslims have lived very peacefully together in the Middle East. And it's really the post-World War II era where you've had this divide. And so we were able to do is break through the divide. And I give President Trump a ton of credit for this because he thought about it. He was an outsider. He thought about it outside the box. And a lot of the things we did, like moving the embassy to Jerusalem or yep. getting out of the Iran deal, he showed people that all the conventional thinking was wrong. And the more we disproved the conventional thinking, the more we just went further and further. And so we, we, we made an incredible breakthrough. Yeah, but your book uh, is called could, Breaking History, Jared. And to me, the, the biggest piece of history that was broken was the peace accord. And I keep, you know, I hear all of this other negative stuff. We all read it. We hear it. You know, the FBI raid. Who's the legal? We know that that Jared was the, the liberal within the, the camp. And, and but wait a minute. I had I had Alan Dershowitz on my podcast two weeks ago or a week ago. I call him the last true liberal. I don't say liberal in the truest sense of the word is a dirty word any more than I say uh, conservative is a dirty word. If we don't learn to get along with the other side, we're never going to have a nation again. So that doesn't mean anything to me. But all people want to know about is who do you think is responsible for the unconstitutional illegal raid by the FBI on Donald Trump's private home? Who, who, who was behind this? Well, I, I think Merrick Garland took responsibility for it. And I think that 
you know, it, whether it's warranted or not is something that that's being debated. It seems to me like it's been an overreach. I mean, I, again, I go into the book, you know, all the defenses we had to do against all these preposterous uh, accusations. So for six years now, first they said Trump was a Russian agent. Right. You know, then they said that he uh, did something inappropriate, you know, by, by trying to investigate corruption in Ukraine, which, you know, before you know, the war is one of the most corrupt, you know, places, uh, you know, in, in terms of the way they ran their government. And so, you know, they, they, they've been promising people for years and years that Trump was terrible. And you have all these political prosecutions. Again, it goes back to, you know, why I was such a big proponent of criminal justice reform is because I don't always believe that prosecutors, when given unchecked power, uh-huh. will use it to do the truly virtuous things. And here they've been going after Trump. Uh, and now the stuff they're going on after him feels very rinky-dink, you know, with regards to the AG case and with regards to this. And it's just very unfortunate. You know, America is not a country where we're supposed to be persecuting our political no, it's, opponents. It's banana Republic. What scares yeah. me and everyone I know is that if this government can do that to a former president, no one is safe. It means anyone can be set up and uh, the house broken into. They uh, I mean, I read the Fourth Amendment. I was the first one in the media right after this to say Donald Trump's Fourth Amendment rights were violated. I was the first because I read the Fourth Amendment on on the on the podcast. They can't do a generalized search. It has to be very specific. Apparently, they went all over the house and God knows what they were looking for. God knows what they could have planted it there. Michael Savage, a host like no other. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I want to go back to you and your book, because that's what we're talking about. It's intimately involved with President Trump. And I'm going to ask you a crazy question. If Mr. Trump runs again and wins, would you again take the role as White House senior advisor? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's like that's that's down the line. And first of all, I would say that uh, that, that I, I do think President Trump was an absolutely incredible president. And, and I write about it in my book, how he got so many things done. You know, there, there were so many different conflicting narratives and so many conflicting things happening where he was constantly under siege. They impeached him twice. They did a special counsel, they did congressional investigations. They accused him of all these different things. And but one of the funny things I always saw was the media would call Trump a dirty, rotten liar who kept all those campaign promises. And the question is, as an outsider, you know, again, he, the first night he slept in the White House was his, his first night in Washington. And so he was never a mayor, he was never a governor. How did he do all that? And I write really how President Trump brought uh, what I thought was a big pragmatism to Washington. And again, as a businessman, you're, you're taught to think about results. You know, politicians think about process and think about sound bites. And in Trump's White House, we were very focused on results. And that's why he cut taxes, did the deregulation. Yeah. Uh, the wealth gap in the country was shrinking. Uh, wages were rising. Inflation was low. Gas prices were low. All these things were because of good, competent management. And I write extensively about how that got done. And I'll say one thing that you've heard before about the different sides, Democrats, Republican. Before President Trump ran, I was a registered uh, independent. And you know, I always believed you have to find your own truth. So I was working in business. So I wasn't you know, studying the different issues uh, as much. But you know, whether you call yourself conservative or liberal, I think that 
you know, we're, we're all Americans before we're one of these labels. And it's very important to have dialogues and try to go deeper into the issues. And, and I think that what's happening now with these raids and with these political persecutions, I have a lot of the groups that were fighting with me on the criminal justice reform who were saying that they're against overzealous prosecutors now being totally silent mm. you know, when the Justice Department is being fully politicized to go after a political opponent. And so I think we have a lot of contradictions. And I think on my third day in Washington, I stopped being bothered by hypocrisy because I realized it's very, very prevalent. That's the middle but, name. But yeah, but a lot of what we did is we, we put our head down. We tried to get things done, whether it's in the Middle East or otherwise. And, uh, and that, that's why I wrote this book. I felt like the media really uh, did not do uh, they, they really didn't even try to understand what was truly happening in the Trump White House. And I think that this book gives gives the first real insider account of of what happened. And I also hope that it inspires other people who are businessmen and outsiders uh, and doers to go into Washington, because it's a place where you can get uh, a lot of things done. I said many years ago on the radio when I had a radio show years ago that a bird needs two wings to fly a right wing and a left wing that if you have only one wing flapping, it'll go in circles. Right now, this country is clearly going in circles and the right wing hasn't been cut off, but it's certainly been tied to the body of the American bird or the American eagle. And we're going nowhere. And that's a, a very, very big reality for people who are true liberals like Alan Dershowitz, who said his own family has been ostracized in Martha's Vineyard. He's been told he can't go to weddings because people won't go. People he's known for 40 years. So he's paying a terrible price for taking a centrist constitutionalist position. And I want to go back to your book, because, again, if, if the title is known as making breaking, breaking history to me, the Abraham Accords are the biggest uh, achievement. And I don't think we have to touch on that again. But I want to get personal for a minute. You know, I visited the White House, I think, twice. And I don't know who it was. Perhaps it was you who invited me to fly on Air Force One. And I want to thank you for the kosher hot dog that I enjoyed on the Air Force One. And I tell yeah, the story, I call, was, uh, it, I call it the, the hot dog summit, because I don't think President Trump was very happy when I was ushered into the, the flying Oval Office. He looked at me like, who, what's he doing here? And then he waved me like a king, an ancient king, like here. He just pointed, sit here, you know, bring the Hebrew in. And he sat me down. But then we had a wonderful conversation. They brought the hot dogs out. I was starving because we had flown all day out and it, I didn't say a word. Of course, it would have been rude, but he looked at my eyes and he's a very sensitive. People don't know this. And I said, you can tell more about a man by the little things than the big things. Uh, anyone can fake the big things. It's very hard to fake the little things. He saw I was hungry. He said, do you want one? He only had two hot dogs. I said, sure. But wait, then he said, do you want mustard or ketchup? Now, what president of the United States would see that a man wants Mustard or ketchup with a kosher hot dog, Jared. So he got two hot dogs delivered and he sees my eyes dart because I was hungry. Would you like one? Yes. The valet come over again and put one on the plate. Ketchup and mustard. No, you don't want the, the, the ketchup, mustard, blah, blah, blah. He dollops out the mustard for me from his plate. I'm showing you a certain humility and generosity that you may not be aware of. And you say it's in the little things that you can see a person's behavior. I doubt very much that Obama would have taken mustard from his plate and given it to anyone or shared a hot dog with anyone or whatever he eats, a tofu dog, if that's what he eats. It would explain why he looks so emaciated. So I really understood how sensitive Donald Trump can be when he wants to be, just like any other powerful man. 
but I think he's roundly dismissed in so many ways and painted into something he is not. And you would know better than I uh, about that. But that brings me to the thing of faith. Everyone knows that you are a religious Jewish person, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, correct. Does that does that help you define yourself, not only in the world, but in terms of politics? Does it help you through all of this stress that uh, we're all going through right now? I mean, you must have had an awful lot of pressure during your years in the White House and even now from outside forces the other side to do things you didn't want to do. What, what keeps you what keeps you straight and narrow? So I, I think all religions are are good. I think all religions could be used for bad as well. And we've seen uh, a lot of historic examples of that. You know, my faith is something that you know I use as as my way to uh, you know try to have a stronger relationship with with God and and to try to you know set some rules which I think are are good for for me and my family to live by. I think it's a great mechanism to uh, set boundaries. So there's no. Uh, who you are, and, and also a great uh, framework in which to raise children and, and build a family. So for me, it was very, very important. You know, being uh, Jewish is something that uh, is important to my family. I write in the book about my grandparents and how uh, my my grandmother was uh, uh, basically in a town in, in Poland, and, and when the Nazis came in, they came. You know, I have to stop you here because I was going to ask you that. The Savage Nation. It's Savage On Demand. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When, when I visited the White House, you had me in your office and I saw pictures of your grandparents in the forests of Poland. And I was shocked that they didn't they chose to fight rather than to just beg for their lives. They went in the woods. Were they resistance fighters? Uh, they were, you know, for, first before they, my grandmother's from a wealthy family. And uh, but the Nazis took some of the educated uh, people into the square, shot them dead uh, amongst them for her relatives and then made the young girl girls clean up the blood off of the stones. And my grandfather is from a poor family. His, his parents were, his father was a tailor. And, uh, and they met up in the woods where they were with the, the Belsky, uh, you know, resistance fighters. And then after the war, they were in a displaced. Did you they say they fought with the, Bel- the Belenskys? The, the Belsky. Belsky. Yeah, the Belsky Brigade. Yeah. Unbelievable. So they, they, did a, they, they, they did a Hollywood movie where they uh, portrayed uh, Daniel Craig. As I remember. The Belsky. Yeah, I, it made a lot of Jews very jealous because we all want to look like Daniel Craig. <laughs> we want to be blonde, right. and, blonde and blue eyes. No, it was so, a great movie. So, so he set a, a high standard, but <clears throat> but that was their uh, that was their that was you know how they survived. Well, I bring it up uh, for a reason, Jared, because when you have grandparents like that, that means your DNA is that of a fighter. It's in your blood, and you are now in a situation that's post political in some ways. But you're fighting. Um, I'm sorry to say that the thyroid cancer you just lived through. Would you like to talk about that battle for a moment? Um, sure. I, I think it's um, you know that was something I wrote about in the book. It was uh, 
it was a very scary experience for me. I, I, I did a full checkup at Walter Reed and they do an amazing job. And then, you know, Doc Connolly said, yep, go get a biopsy. We noticed a little nodule on your thyroid. I put it off because I was busy dealing with all the different things I described in the book. You know, the book is very fast paced. I, I wrote it. It reads like a novel because my days in the White House were fast paced. This is not a romance novel because it was not a romantic uh, experience. It's an action. Uh, it's an action book. And, um, you know, he comes by and I basically tells my assistant, you got to get this done tomorrow. I'm nervous. And so the next morning she changed my schedule. I went to Walter Reed, got the biopsy. And then he came and said, it's come back. Uh, you have cancer. You have to do the surgery. What, what year so, was that, Jared, that you were diagnosed with thyroid cancer? Uh, it was 2019. So you were in the and White so, House at the time. Yes. And so I, I actually I tell a very funny story in the book about how I, I wanted to keep it private. You know, my view is everyone has enough of their own problems. Let me see if I can get this done. And, you know, the, the weeks leading up to it were very scary because all the things that you take for granted as a human, you're thinking, what could be different, right? If you, you know, you have to take a pill for the rest of your life or you lose different functions that you have, uh, it, it makes you take an inventory of all the blessings you have in life that we take for granted. And, and so uh, I was going to keep it from the president. So I felt like you had enough stress. Are you in remission? Uh, thankfully, the surgery was successful. And, and uh, you know, I just went through some more tests and, you know, God willing, uh, wow. everything will be good. So but, but I was telling uh, Michael's story where, I didn't tell President Trump because I, I didn't want him to to be nervous about it. And obviously, he calls me into his office, you know, the day before I was getting the surgery, and says, "Are you nervous about the surgery?" And I said, "How did you know about it?" He says, "I'm the president. I know everything." <laughs> and so I later figured out. I think the White House doc told him. Uh, but I went up and uh, went to New York, and we were able to keep it quiet. And, and thankfully, it was successful. And uh, you know, very very grateful for the doctors and, and everyone who was uh, able to see me through that. So you're now the founder of Affinity Partners, a global investment firm. And uh, one of your largest clients is the Saudi government. Is that correct? Uh, PIF is, is the sovereign fund. They're one of our, uh, they're, they're a very prestigious institutional investor and they're, they're one of our investors. Yes. Amazing. So if people say that that's sort of a result of your years in the White House, you know, would you say, would you say there's any truth to that? How, how, how do you distinguish between your acting as an advisor to the Saudis, which, by the way, I think is a good thing since they're very pro-American, by the way. I don't know why that would be a bad thing. And your investment advice has to work or they wouldn't count on you. I mean, you're telling them what to do with their sovereign fund. Uh, what do you think? people are saying about it. Is there any truth to the fact that it's sort of like a pay payoff for, for what did you do for them? What could you have done for them that that would have resulted in a payoff? You, you made peace between Israel and the Saudis. So what's the, the, the big deal here? I don't get it. Yeah. So, so basically, first of all, I, I was in the private sector before I was in government. I was an investor and then uh, obviously served for four years. I served uh, you know, as a volunteer for free. I even paid for my own health care. Uh, during the time, so I didn't want to take anything from the government. And then when I left, uh, I, I had great success in the Middle East. So the Abraham Accords, which you mentioned earlier, we achieved six peace deals uh, in the Middle East. We ended the GCC rift. Um, and since I was no longer able to impact the progress that we were making in the Middle East, which was a, a really big turnaround, right? So when President Trump came into office, ISIS had a caliphate the size of Ohio. Syria was in a civil war right. where 500,000 people were killed. Right. Yemen and Libya were destabilized. All of our allies uh, were forsaking. And as, as you said, the conventional thinking was what was said by Kerry, which is you won't have peace between right. the Israelis and the Arabs. So 
I really spent my first year, and I described this very closely in the book, listening and trying to understand and learn what situation was. It was such a hopeless thing. It was a butt of jokes. Uh, you know, people saying, you know, well, you know, you know, Middle East peace is like the deal that'll never get done, and it's so impossible. Trump's, you know, just giving it to his son-in-law to see what happens. But <laughs> I think his logic was: is everyone else failed, so you can't do any worse than the people yeah. beforehand. How bad can they do? Right. So, yeah, and so uh, I, I really got to build very strong relationships there, and the the agreed, agreements all were struck in the last six months. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get them connected, but. Through this, through this investing business, I'm, I'm able to connect businesses together. We're investing in Israeli companies, American companies, and helping them export to Africa, the Middle East. And I'm a big believer that people tend to focus on shared interests. And if we can get uh, Israeli and Saudi businesses to work together, I think that only furthers the, the peace and, and the connectivity that, that we built and makes for a much more stable region. I will say, again, 2016, the Middle East was the least stable region in the world. And if we're talking today in 2000, 22, the Middle East is now one of the most stable and thriving regions in the world, um, you know, thanks to the great work we did, but also, unfortunately, thanks to the incompetent uh, foreign policy that the current administration has done that's led to China being involved with Taiwan, that's led to uh, a war with Russia, which is crazy. And um, I wanted to talk about that for a minute, because you mentioned something that's very near and dear to me. You mentioned ISIS rampaging through the Middle East before President Trump took over. And I remember when he had won that November. I had him on the radio show and I said something to the effect. It was just before the election. I said, if you win, would you pick up a phone and talk to President Putin? You know, something to that effect. He said, he said, I would do it before the inauguration if I win to try and get peace going. Donald, listen, how would you diffuse the situation now between Russia and the U.S., assuming the world doesn't blow up before before January? What would you do if you were president? First day, what would you do with Putin to stop this these war drums? Well, the problem is we have Putin has no respect for Obama at all, doesn't like him and doesn't respect him. And Obama doesn't like Putin, but they, they have a great dislike for each other. And Putin has no respect at all for Obama. And I think that you can, you have potentially a really catastrophic situation here. I'll be honest with you, because those two are not. I will say this. If I win on November 8th, and hopefully every one of your listeners is going to go out, we're going to need everybody. Absolutely. So Republicans have a tougher path, you know that, to get there. Yes. But yes. if I win on November 8th, I think I could see myself meeting with Putin and meeting with Russia prior to the start of the administration. I think it would be. Wow. Wise. That's an amazing. That's an amazing news story. That's fabulous, Mr. Trump. So then the U.S. and Russia get together. They combine forces and they wipe ISIS basically off the map using a combined air force and other powers. And now we turn around and we are basically having a proxy war with Russia, with Ukraine as the proxy fighter. Which sending in tons of weapons, escalating. I see no diplomacy. I agree a thousand percent with Kissinger's opinion. We need to have diplomacy, not bombs and bullets sent over there. I see a madness that's getting worse by the day. War games in South America that Russia is, is organizing. This is getting worse, not better, Jared. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Do you think there's any hope for a settlement between Russia and Ukraine before the world blows up? So, so I obviously hope for it and I pray for it. But 
you know, unfortunately, President Trump's success in foreign policy. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. So uh, his success in foreign policy was not just a rebuke of the Democrats. It was also a rebuke of the Republicans before him. And his success as a politician was a rebuke of the entire establishment Absolutely. Um, that became the, the permanent political class. And so he came uh, with a with a fresh point of view. And his foreign policy was about putting America first and Americans first. He did it through strength. Um, you don't make peace with your allies. You make peace with your enemies. In a mm. lot of cases, we even had issues with our allies because they took our, our military protection and our foreign aid as entitlements, whereas Trump was saying, well, we've got to make sure if we're give, doing things every year that it's in our interest and you've got to carry your fair share. Yeah. And he, he opened up the line with Putin. He opened up a line with Kim Jong-un. Uh, we spoke with, with China. We made a great deal uh, deal with China. Did you meet Putin? Have you met him? Yes, I've met Putin. And, and actually, in my book, I, I write about uh, the negotiation that we had with Putin on the OPEC plus oil deal with uh, Saudi and Russia. Wow. Where during the Great Recession, we were going to lose almost 10 million jobs in the country in our oil and gas industry. And, you know, President Trump, you know, during his, through his policies, got America to become energy independent. The oh, gas yes. prices were low. And that meant we didn't have to be in the Middle East for anything other than to defend against extremism and to have him as a trading partner. But we had no reliance on them for oil. The, the current administration has reversed that independence that we created. And then by by virtue signaling and name calling and all the things that just don't help Americans, they've really run, I think, a much more conventional foreign policy, which which I think makes Americans a lot less safe, um, you know, less provocations. You know, Trump was much more purposeful and achieved incredible results on foreign policy, whether it was in trade with Mexico and Canada and China and Japan and South Korea or whether it was in creating peace deals. You know, I'm reading a page from your book about uh, the Putin thing, about Putin walking away from the, the oil deal that you tried to arrange with them on page 370. Mm -hmm. And you say, I called MBS, the Saudi crown, crown prince described his frustration with Russia. He thought they were playing games, etc. And then you write this, Jared. I think it's very important that people hear this because I keep going back I wrote the book, God, Faith and Reason for a reason, because it's not only about faith, it's also about reason. And I don't think God is unreasonable at a certain point. If you try to reason with them, I think you can reason with God as well. Sometimes I think it's true. But you write this when I arrived home. I, I, I think God's always trying to reason with us. That's my interpretation. of it. <laughs> well, a rabbi once said to me, I want to cynical. And I said to him, God is so great. Why does he need us to bow down to him? And the rabbi said, he doesn't need us to bow down to him. We need to bow down. To him, he, in other words, we need a higher power. He doesn't need us. We need him. And that's what religion is all about. And so you write about this. When I arrived home, I sat down with Ivanka, Avi and the kids for Seder dinner as we practiced the sacred rituals and partook in the Passover meal. It almost felt as if life were normal again. And he said, you wrote, as we sang your favorite Passover song, a prayer about God's promise to deliver each generation of the Jewish people from their oppressors. The familiar sound of my phone broke the serenity. It was MBS and I had to take it. What was that call about? So, so that was a call uh, during the uh, depths. So Saudi and Russia had created this thing called OPEC plus where uh, they agreed to work with OPEC and Russia to try to control uh, the global oil supply uh, to manage it. But they were having a dispute um, and, uh, and that was leading to, to prices uh, dropping very, very quickly, which really threatened to put out of uh, out of business all the American manufacturers, which again, American producers, which is about 11 million jobs, uh, 10 to 11 million jobs in this country. So 
I didn't do anything because Trump uh, wanted uh, low oil prices. But after uh, finally thinking that it was getting too low, he called me and asked me to engage. And I go through in the next couple of pages in the book, the, the back and forth negotiations that I did there with Secretary Burlett, where we basically got Russia and Saudi to agree to cuts uh, amongst OPEC plus uh, countries, which really led to a stabilization of the global oil markets. And President Trump did a masterful job. And I tell also a funny story uh, there where in one of his conversations with Putin, where he's really pushing Putin to make these concessions, uh, you know, he, he's joking with Putin. They're kind of provoking a little bit, saying, you know, aren't you a little worried about China? You know, all your wealth is in the South. China's, you know, they got so much population. They may try to expand a little bit and, you know, try to take, you know, some of your uh-huh. some of your wealth with your own guests. And Putin turns to him and says, if I'm the one who should be worried about my South, why are you the one building a wall on your Southern border? <laughs> well, that's a good question. <laughs> and, and so so Trump says, OK, that's a good point. And uh, but they got along. And I think that it's uh, well, because yeah, the two very, should... very powerful men who, who see eye to eye on certain issues, which is it's it's strength through power. It's not strength through weakness. And, and we don't know what. And, and, yeah. And we did. We didn't try to unnecessarily provoke him. Right. I think that what happened here was a lot of unnecessary provocation, uh, which put him in a position that. that oh, he's making they're making him worse. It goes back yeah. to if you take a man as he is, you make him worse. If you take a man as he can't can be, you make him better. But, Jared, you know, in your book, and of course, we could talk for hours. You have other things to do. You write about the people, which I found fascinating. Steve Bannon, Anthony, every word now that I say is a key word that's going to electrify the audience. All I have to do is say Bannon, Fauci, Sessions, Christie, Bolton, Madison Kelly, General John Kelly. All I have to do is say those words. We could talk for hours. There is so much gossip in the book. But everyone, you know, when you say the book is about politics, world history, and it is, it's a sweeping canvas of world history is what it comes down to. And you say it's like a novel, which is very interesting because it reads like a novel. There's a, there's, there's a lot in here that's very much like a sweep of history set around a single man, which is yourself. And we can't go into all those names. And I have my opinions on all of them, as we all do, whether you say Bannon or Fauci or Sessions or Christie or John Bolton, who I called many names on my radio show because I first saw him when President Trump was announced to have won. I was in Mar-a-Lago and in the outskirts of Mar-a-Lago, there was John Bolton. He was circling. I said he was circling the buffet like a vulture. He wasn't even allowed anywhere near the buffet. And I remember President Trump, you know, you know how he is. He asks people who are near him their opinion. It doesn't mean he's going to follow your opinion. He asks diverse people their opinions and it makes up his own mind. And he says, well, what do you think of him? I said, stay away from him. Stay away from me. Got us into Iraq. He's no good. Well, I was right. No one listens to me. I'm just the guy who was on the radio. Home of borders, language, culture, the savage nation. Jared. Do you see yourself staying in politics and running for office in the future? I know how crazy that sounds. No, absolutely not. I, I think that for me, look, I, I think the way our founders uh, thought of our country was that people would leave their farms, go and serve, and then go back to their farms. And hmm. for me, it was very unexpected to have the opportunity to serve. I write uh, a lot about on the campaign how uh, I started going deeper on the issues, meeting people throughout the country. I was very inspired. I don't think uh, Donald's election was about left versus right or right versus left. I think it was about outside versus inside. And I think that he represented a big part 
of America who felt like they were being left behind with bad trade deals, whose children were being sent to these endless wars, and who felt like they weren't being represented. I think he saw our country going in a bad way with tremendous potential. And I got you know more and more involved in the campaign. And again, I write about this in the book, and then I was very inspired to do it. Now, the challenge with outsiders coming to Washington is we didn't have the experience, had to deal with all of these, uh, what I call career political animals. And so right. I, I, I don't really call it gossip what I do in the book. I think I just told the story and I tried to tell it very quickly. And, uh, and I just showed people who they were, what they said. And, and I wanted readers to really form their own opinion of, of who was right or wrong. But I'm even, I think, critical of myself where I write about how I was uh, out of my depth initially. And, and there were things that I was learning from the different experiences and um, and again, I, I I was very forced to to learn, and I learned a lot from books. I learned from from different people, uh, but all of those different people played a role uh, in, in my education. And uh, and ultimately, I think I described uh, you know different things they did. And you know, I don't want to uh, maybe be be critical of anyone's intentions, uh, but I do think there are some people who are more competent than others. And again, the political class is about process, uh, but Trump was about results and. At the end of the day, he was a very demanding boss. He wanted us to get things done. And that's ultimately what we did. And the more that I was showing that I was able to achieve things uh, the, and, and, and master the Washington system and understand how it worked and understand how to build enough alliances to get things done, the more I was given additional responsibilities and even some responsibilities I, I wasn't looking for, like building the wall. Uh, but you know that wasn't getting done. And he asked me to do it. And I went about to, to, try, to, to try to get it done. We, we were very successful at that. Well, you know, my mantra for years has been and still is a nation is defined by borders, language, culture. And when President Trump began his administration, they were gung ho on building the wall, restoring America's pride in its history and its, uh, you know, its its identity. And of course, taking pride in its culture, borders, language, culture. There's not a nation on Earth that is not defined by that. And I know you probably don't want to go there, but what we're experiencing now is the unraveling of everything that every American uh, that I know of believes in this nation. The flood of illegals, four million illegal aliens put in luxury hotels in Manhattan. This country can't sustain this, Jared. It's impossible. I don't understand how Nancy Pelosi and the Biden people around them don't see what they're doing. They're taking a scorched earth approach, doing things that simply undo what Trump did rather than what is good for America. They're not even thinking about what's good for America. It's like, let's see, the Trump people did this. We'll do the opposite. Do you agree with that? That viewpoint? I, I, I think that's exactly the right characteristic. I, I think they, they basically undid everything day one. And I don't think they had any idea of what the consequences would be. And, and I'll tell you this about the issue. Right. So during the campaign, again, as, as somebody who came from what I'd call like a, an echo chamber center left on the Upper East Side, uh, the way that you know Trump's uh, description of, of immigration was being portrayed was you know, as, as racist or xenophobic. But I think that a lot of what his actual policy was was quite pragmatic, right? In the sense that you know, he said, we're going to build a wall with a big, beautiful door, right? The big, beautiful door is a merit-based immigration system. You take a country like Canada, they have a very open rhetoric, but a super closed system. And they only invite people into their country who will help their citizens contribute to their economy and do things in, in a good way. And we have to have a humanitarian system, but the current system is, is really not humanitarian. I've got some friends who are 
you know, big lefties who, who are very against human trafficking, but they're silent on what's happening now. Of if you look at the statistics at the yeah. southern border, I think 80% of the women who are uh, trafficked or are paying money to these coyotes who then spend this money you know, to do bad things. Uh, I think 80% are sexually abused, that we have a lot of drugs coming into the country. A lot of the people who come over illegally are then put into human slavery. So I think what they're doing is, is incredibly uh, unhuman, inhumane. And I think it's very unfair to people in the inner cities of this country who are American citizens who uh, should be getting investment and care. They're not put up in $600 a night hotel rooms. Uh, they're not given free health care. Unbelievable. And, and free, well, free we, we've phones. got veterans on the streets and they're yeah. giving these illegal aliens hotel rooms. President Trump during the election earned more than you write on page 430, 429. I'm right. Reading right. Page 429. President Trump earned more than 74 million votes, more votes than any other incumbent president in American history. You know, they all haven't gone away, Jared. And after this raid on Mar-a-Lago, I think there are more than 74 million. I know people who were, let's say, tired of Trump and the drama. And they said, you know, he was great, but we can't take any more of this turmoil. Let's elect someone else who can win and, you know, put it after this raid. I would say there's more than 74 million people who would vote for him again. But it goes back to this this. Defamation of character that they have been laying upon him from day one. And so if you look at this, we have to go back to when he won. I'll never forget what Chuck Schumer said. If you take on the intelligence agencies, there are six ways to Sunday that they can get you. It seems to me that this orchestrated attack upon President Trump on yourself, on everyone around President Trump is payback for being outsiders rather than, let us say, bureaucrats. Would you say that's yeah, an accurate uh, analysis? I think it's completely accurate. Look, you, you know, you've had Tea Party Republicans who have come out. You know, they were against the system. They go to Washington and they start going to the cocktail parties and they want to get hired by the media companies and they, they start playing by the rules and they obey. You know, Trump mm. came. He, he campaigned as an outsider. Uh, he won as an outsider and he governed right. as an outsider. What I would say to people who, you know, who want to make up their point of view is what I would say is that the media has become so sensationalized. I never believed in information asymmetry to the degree that I do when I was working in the White House and the coverage of what we were doing couldn't be more off. As I would say, you know, read my book. Uh, you know, I, I, it's, it's easy. It's out on Amazon. We just reached uh, number one today on, on the Amazon list. So we're, we're number one. But if you read the book, then you'll understand, number one, what Trump was trying to do. Number two, how he did it. Number three, what he faced. And, and, um, and again, I, I, I think that you know, some people say, you know, I wish Trump was more normal, but, you know, I, I say, well, if he was normal like me, then I, I don't know that he would have been as successful to things he did. So I think that uh, obviously his policies, I, I think, are phenomenal, but I think his unique style and his approach is what's made him successful at, at casinos, at real estate, at, at, at books, at television, and then at politics. And so, you know, I think that you need, uh, you know, Trump's fighting spirit and you need a lot of his personality uh, characteristics in order to, to fight through Washington, which is a vicious, nasty place. I write about that extensively in the book. Where does he get his strength from? Jared, how does a man his age who eats such garbage? <laughs> Mr. President, why did you want to come here today Because they have great pizza. They supposedly have the best pizza. We'll let you know about it in a half hour. Uh, you know, I, I'm a man with a PhD in nutrition. I don't understand how the human body can take <laughs> he doesn't smoke and he doesn't drink to his credit. Yeah. Right. People don't know that he doesn't drink. 
and he doesn't so smoke, I, but, but he, I, eats I the, joke, he eats Drek, yeah, I, he eats Trafe day and night. How does he do this? So I, I joked with him when he was getting his medical checkups. I said, what's your blood type, Diet Coke? And, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, look, part of me is afraid of what would happen to him if you actually changed his diet. But uh, but he eats, you know, McDonald's hamburgers all the time. He's uh, He's got his diet and, and it just works. And so my sense is I, I don't know how he gets the energy. Uh, there, there was one funny thing where uh, at some point Trump was asking me about Kelly. You know, he says, you know, he, he seems like he's exhausted. He says, you know, is he you think he's too tired? I said, with all due respect, we're all exhausted. You're the only one who's not exhausted, you know, because again, he would work 24 seven. Uh, he increased the metabolism of government like nothing anyone's ever seen before. And where he gets his strength and his energy, I, I have no idea. But as a younger guy, I found it very, very hard to keep up with him all the time. I wrote about that type many years ago in a book called I don't know, just the skeptical nutritionist back in the 80s. And I called men like that who violate every rule that we know to be healthful or good for our survival or longevity. They're known as nutritional rogues because people will always say, well, my grandfather smoked and drank and lived to 102. I said, but he's a nutritional rogue. Most of us can't drink and smoke and eat uh, McDonald's and live you know, that long. So it's not I don't want anyone listening to this podcast to run out and buy McDonald's and and grab a, a cigar on the way out. I want to read the last paragraph of your book, Breaking History, where you write when you're leaving Washington. I think it's very important. As the roar of the 747 engine faded into the distance, I thought of the words that had guided me since I was a young man wrestling with my father's prison sentence and wondering what God could possibly have in store. And then you end with don't look back, look forward. What does that mean, Jared? I think it's uh, look, what, one of the hardest things for me about writing a book is my, my orientation is not to worry about the past, but you learn from the past and you're supposed to grow from it in order to apply the lessons you've learned to try to work on the future. Writing a book is really about going backwards, but I felt like it was important to do in order to uh, ca categorize, uh, really catalog all the things that occurred so that there'd be an accurate account for history. And hopefully that people who are in the similar situations that I, that I was in in the future will maybe have a guide to try to get through and navigate some of these complex dynamics and, uh, that I faced. And, and, and so uh, that was one of my reasons for doing it. But my, my general approach is, you know, when you have a problem in life, you can either get totally frustrated about the problem and you can become obsessed about it. You could focus on revenge. You could focus on you know, other people or why you have the problem, or you could put all your efforts towards the solution. And I go through some of the experiences of my life that kind of guided me to be more forward looking. And, and, you know, you just can't waste calories or energy or worry on, you know, why things happened or, you know, or what you could change in the past, because you can't change that. You can only change how you react to things. And so, you know, I believe we all have an opportunity every day to change our lives and to, 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 to strive for better, strive for big, you know, it really, make a difference in, in the world in a big way. And so uh, what I meant to write with that was that I was basically closing a chapter. Uh, again, it was uh, a pretty uh, surreal chapter in my life. I, I go through the journey, getting there and the journey through it. Um, but do you miss the chapter it? was closing. Do you miss not, Do you miss the White House? Do you miss the no, intensity? Not at all. Not no, at all. You know, what I say about that, Michael, is that it's, it's that the hardest work in the White House, I would say, is is preventing a really big problem from becoming a fatal problem. And that's mm. when you deploy all of your best work. And well, we have know, some and, fatal and, problems right now. We're all <laughs> praying that Donald Trump becomes a uh, president again. Jared, this little book, does it look familiar to you? What this book is? Can you see is it? That a, is that a Tehillah? 
what, what is my that? grandmother gave it to me when I was a little boy. I carried it with me and never read it till I got old. It's a prayer book. And sometimes before I go on a little TV show like Newsmax or whatever, I, I do read this for strength. So people wonder where people derive strength from. I don't think you take strength from the air. I don't think people can just generate it all on their own. And I know that we touched on this earlier, but this is a question no one's ever raised. Is Donald Trump himself a man who believes in a higher power? So that that's a very personal question. And I think that's one that, that's best asked for him to, to give his description. But what I've seen with him is that number one is he was always been respectful of my faith. And, and I know that he's, uh, that he's definitely pursued his own faith. And I think he's somebody who believes that, um, that obviously things in the world happen, but that you have to do your best every day to try to drive uh, the best outcomes. But th- that, that's a very personal question that I'll, I'll let you ask. Him. No, I, I know you'll have I that opportunity step on him or on you, but I mean, I know you're a man of faith. I don't understand how anyone could be that strong-willed and not derived from some other power than themselves because people are not inherently that strong. You know, I mean, when I study human nature, I've seen very strong people and very weak people. And I don't think that the very strong people derive all their strength from within. Some of it comes from elsewhere. And, and maybe that's a mystical question for another time. I want to thank you for being with us today. I know time is short. You probably have to do 50 interviews today. I see you're all set up for one after the other. Jared Kushner, Breaking History, a White House memoir, reads like a Dostoevsky novel. Uh, there, I know you don't want to use the word <laughs> gossip, but I don't think it's not gossipy to talk about some of the people you talk about. I mean, you talk about people that everyone uh, wants to know about, and I think some of it is new information. And I don't want to bring up any of the names again because we already did, but it's all in there. And I wish you the best of luck with the book that you never intended to write. And I'd like you to have the last word on the podcast today. Last word. Uh, uh, first of all, it's just a, it's an honor to be with you, Michael. And really thank you for uh, always sending your advice and guidance uh, during the time. And uh, most importantly, I just tell people, you know, you've read a lot uh, about a lot of different things in the Trump administration. You've spoken about it. You've spoken with your friends about it over the last years. I'd encourage you to go to Amazon.com or wherever you go to, to buy the book. It's out uh, now. And uh, really hope you can form your own opinion and try to get a primary source on what occurred. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to be with you today. Well, God bless you and your lovely family and take care of yourselves. We're living in a very, very crazy, dangerous world. Thanks, Jared. Appreciate it very much and good luck. Well, hopefully we'll see you down in Miami soon. Moon over Miami, moon over Miami. I hope so. That's That's a nice thing to think about. Thanks, Jared. A pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Bye now. Thank you. Bye bye. Michael Savage, a host like no other. This is the hot dog summit aboard Air Force One, which is referenced with Jared Kushner during the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. I'm Michael Savage. Now, as you well know, everyone who listens to this show and listens avidly knows that yesterday was one of the highest professional days of my life. I mean, there are a few days in your life that you will remember. Falling in love, getting married, having children, parents dying. Those are days you never forget, right? But then there are other days, the professional days, that come up into the uh, constellation of great stars in your astronomy. 
and yesterday was one of the great stars in the astronomy of Michael Savage's memory. And that is because I was invited by the president to join him at two fundraisers, which I'll tell you about. I met some of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. I don't know why I live where I live. I like live in hell. I live in a beautiful hell where there are so few realists and conservatives that you, you start to wonder what the world is all about. And then you go to one of these fundraisers, and you see people, ordinary people, great people, and you see the love for the president and the love for the savage nation that I never get every day. I sit alone in a room most of the time with a microphone and a dog who's 16 years old, who is blind and deaf, and got, he's gotten old listening to the show, as many of you have. And I met people who I never knew listened to the show, said things to me like, you once said blankety-blank, and I remembered, and it was 15 years ago, or I see a young man, 25 years old, who says to me, well, I grew up as a kid listening to you, and I'm now with this or I'm now with that. You don't know what this is like. The compression of time, the accordion of time, has been talked about by philosophers, not by a talk show host. But that was the kind of day it was. And I can, I can only share some details with you, not all, as you can well understand. You know, I'm in the media, so you would think I in the media should know better. But let me tell you something. I'm also an American consumer of the news and of the media. We all know we've never seen such a perversion of the truth as we have around this president. I learned things about his accomplishments that I never knew. Let me tell you something. I'm going to give you one example if you think I'm speaking in too many generalities right now. Have any of you heard about the right to try bill? I didn't, and I'm in the media. The right to try bill, I didn't even know what it was. But it was about giving patients the right to try experimental medicines Patients who are terminal and dying, and there's an experimental drug out there, but the drug companies were reluctant to let the patients use it for fear of liability and suits. The doctors wouldn't prescribe them for fear of being sued if the patient died. Well, the president made it possible for the pharmaceutical companies and the doctors to prescribe these drugs for people who are on their last legs, the right to try, Bill. Did you know anything about it? Did CNN tell you about the right to try bill that this president pushed through on his own? I'm giving you one example of something that I in the media didn't even know existed. I thought that I knew about the bias, certainly. I knew about the twisted psychotics in the media. I knew that. I didn't know the good stuff, and I thought I knew the good stuff. Something happened in New Mexico on the way to California that we heard about. He did a fundraiser, a rally, really, in a stadium, an auditorium in New Mexico, they're in New Mexico. They do a fundraiser, a rally. 40% of the crowd was Hispanic. Did you know that? Robert, Jim, did you hear about that? 40% of the audience was Hispanic and 40% of the crowd were Democrats that came to see Donald Trump. I am telling you that there's a groundswell that's changed in this country, and I know why it's changed, because the other side has seen the psychosis of the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democrat Party. One has the teeth falling out. The other has the brain falling out. The other had the guts falling out. The other had the... St I never saw anything like this. There is not a sane American amongst the Democrat candidates, not a single one. And so people who are rational, who are not zealots, maybe some Democrats have said, I've had enough with this party. Hispanics, whites, blacks, Asians, if you could hear about the people who were at these fundraisers, you'd say it's all lily white. Nothing wrong if it was, by the way. God bless white people. But it wasn't all white people. New Mexico. We got a caller from New Mexico, California. Linda in California. 
Go ahead. What were your observations, please? Is that me? I'm Linda. Yes, Linda, fire away. Yes, yes, yes. This is Linda from Martinez, California. My husband and I were there yesterday. It was the most phenomenal event. Like you said, Donald Trump was on fire. He looked wonderful. Everybody was fired up. It was. He looked wonderful. Right. They didn't. Not only did they not defeat him, but the pain they inflicted on him has come and gone. This man is stronger than ever. You know, there's a saying, that which does not kill you makes you stronger, correct? Yes. And what they did to him or try to do to him and his sons in particular is going to come back to haunt them for the rest of their life. By the way, take this away, if you will. The president looks stronger than ever. He looks better than he did when I first met him. They tried to destroy him and his family, and they failed. The guy's stronger than ever. Here is a man who's conducting world affairs. Here is a man who's got the issue of Iran on his hands, North Korea, an election, fundraising, personal things, family things, grandchild things that we know nothing about. Okay. And he has the dignity and respect for this audience because it's about the audience. It's not about me. And I would say that he extended his hand of friendship and I will never bite the hand of friendship. I remember this. So we're sitting in the boardroom, and I guess a light lunch was served. I didn't even eat much of it. It was some cheesy stuff I can't eat. I don't like the taste of it. I had some prosciutto, which I liked. I said, yeah, get me the prosciutto. Then I said, by the way, I've been up since 5 in the morning, young lady. I haven't had a thing to eat today except whatever. And before I finished it, they come down and say, okay, the president's ready to see you. So, okay, now I go into the, the, the head guy's office. On the plane, there were three other people. They sat on a sofa. He motioned to a seat next to him like the grilling chair, right to the left where the guest would sit. He went like this with the hand, pointed, (laughs) basically sit there, you. And uh, I will not say what transpired, but I I made him strong stuff. (laughs) Another man would have buckled and ran out of there crying in a way. But you know something? I'm made of strong stuff. I had a very stern father, so let me put it to you this way. It's not what I... I expected what went on. It wasn't bad. It was great. So then, I I think I can tell you this. Two hot dogs are delivered for the president. Delicious on buns, and I'm starving at this point. And I'm feeling no pain. So he looks at me. He must have seen my eyes dart at the hot dogs. And he's very sensitive. He says, you want one? And it, it was his lunch. I said, sure. So he takes one off his plate delicately on another plate. The valet brings a plate, and he says to me, do you want mustard or ketchup? He said, no, you don't want that ketchup with sugar on it, do you? I don't know how he knows this, but I will tell you this. I found out that they know what I say on the radio, as you might expect. I want to show you how generous this man is. You say, it's a big deal giving you a hot dog? Yes. Yes, it's a big deal sharing a plate of food with a stranger. When you're the king of the world, I mean, when you think about it. So he got two hot dogs delivered, and he sees my eyes dart because I was hungry. Would you like one? Yes. The valet come over again, put one on the plate. Ketchup and mustard. No, you don't want the, the, the ketchup, mustard, blah, blah, blah. He dollops out the mustard for me from his plate. I'm showing you a certain humility and generosity that you may not be aware of, and you say it's in the little things that you can see a person's behavior. I doubt very much that Obama would have taken mustard from his plate and given it to anyone or shared a hot dog with anyone or whatever he eats, a tofu dog, 
if that's what he eats. It would explain why he looks so emaciated. But here's the interesting part. I'm from Queens, but I grew up on the other side of Union Turnpike from the president. He delicately cut his hot dog in pieces, which is very interesting to me, and ate them with a knife and fork. I ate it like I was at a baseball game because I never saw a hot dog eaten with a knife and fork. But the president cut his hot dog in a piece, then knife, fork, fork into mouth, eat. Well, that's because he grew up on the other side of the tracks. But it's interesting how we wound up in the same place at the same time sharing his lunch because he's a very generous man and a very down-to-earth man, by the way. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? Please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.